I don't know anyone who would claim Leviticus as their favorite book of the Bible. And I get it. I, I think Leviticus has defeated many an attempt to read through the Bible in one year. Can anybody testify to that? Maybe you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just saying. Uh, but hey, Calvary Chapel, we teach verse by verse through the Bible because we believe all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So Leviticus is inspired and profitable. Now you might say, well, I know it's inspired. I don't know how profitable it might be. Well, hey, we're, we're going to have some fun with this. I, I've really enjoyed studying for this so far. I've been learning things, and whenever I'm learning things in my study, I learn that not everybody else is, inter- is as interested in the things that interest me, but uh, I, think you're, I think you're really going to be pleasantly surprised as we go through this. The reason it, it can seem so boring and tedious to us is because Leviticus is very much a functional book of the Bible, meaning it's not really there to inspire, it's not really there to tell stories, it's not even there to lay down doctrine, although it does. It was there to give an explanation to the priests and the Levites, from where the term Leviticus gets its name, of how to handle things in the tabernacle. So for that reason, it's, it can almost read like a manual, <laughs> like you're reading the instructions, because that's really what Leviticus was. It was instructions for worship in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But there is more to it, as we will see, and uh, in the beginning here, we'll take some time to examine that. But let's do some basic background first. As I said, the name of the book is Leviticus, and that comes from the word Levite. These are those of the tribe of Levi, and you remember from the story of the golden calf, they were the ones that stood with the Lord and put a stop to that worship, and so God assigned them to be the ones that would serve in the sanctuary. So Leviticus comes from the Greek name, which is actually just Leviticus. The Hebrew name for this book is Vayikra, which means called, and it's just the first word of the book of Leviticus, the Lord called to Moses, and the verb comes first in the, in the Hebrew there, so Vayikra, which means called, and there's really not much deep significance behind that, that's just the way that they titled their books. Traditionally, and I, I would say certainly, authored by Moses, we're going to read at the end of Deuteronomy that Moses would take the book of the law and give it to Joshua to place into the Ark of the Covenant. We've talked about this in detail as we've gone through the beginning of Genesis and of Exodus, uh, that there are reasons to believe that there may have been updates made to the book in terms of place names. We're going to see things written throughout the Pentateuch that uh, they'll describe things that happened to Moses after he died, or they'll say it is done even to this day. So there's no reason to believe that Joshua or another anointed prophet could not have uh, also contributed to this work, but um, that, that all gets very um, speculative, and also it's a little pedantic. This was Moses' book, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five, the Pentateuch, that's what that word means, five books, was written by Moses just prior to their entrance into Canaan, which is the promised land, the land of Israel, and that's about, about circa 1400 BC, and we spent an extensive amount of time going through the date in the book of Exodus, so feel free to go back and take a look at that. It's really the same book, even though it's a different chapter, you might say, so all the same things apply. And it is within the structure of the Pentateuch that we understand the role of the book of Leviticus. Now, we don't often think about this, that the way the books in the Bible are organized, in some cases, is very important. You may not know this, that the minor prophets from Hosea through Malachi, there's 12 of them, are organized into a single unit. In the Hebrew, it's not called the minor prophets, it's called the book, singular, the book of the 12. 
And it's, it encourages us to read it as in that kind of structure, as in why was this book put here as opposed to this one. For example, the post-exilic prophets, meaning the prophets that wrote after the exile, are at the end. And Malachi was the last one written, so there's a structure there. It's the same thing with the Pentateuch, the first five books. The Torah is the traditional name. It means law. The first five books, there is a structure to Genesis through Deuteronomy. And in knowing that is how we understand the purpose of the book of Leviticus. It's a story. Genesis through Deuteronomy is telling us a story. It begins in the book of Genesis with the fall from the presence of God. Man was in fellowship and harmony with the Lord until the fall, until sin came in. And not only did God's people fall from the Garden of Eden, but or all people, I should say, but God's people, the Jews, ended up not in their promised land, but in Egypt. And there are reasons for that, but they ended up in slavery. So it's a fall within a fall in the book of Genesis. Then in Exodus, we have Israel's journey out of slavery through the wilderness to the mountain of God, the deliverance to the mountain. And it ended with the construction of the sanctuary, the tabernacle at the mountain. And Leviticus, right in the middle, establishes the rules. Okay, if we've fallen from grace, but God is bringing us out of slavery. So how then are we to conduct ourselves? If God's going to be in our midst, how are we going to, to act? That's the function of Leviticus. Then in Numbers, they leave the mountain and go through the wilderness again to the promised land. And Deuteronomy describes the return into the land with God. So this, this structure, and you can see it in the slide, how it's shaped almost half of an X. This is called a chiastic structure. It's, it's a big word, but you can get this. The, the letter chi in Greek is the letter X. So you can see how the outline, other than our outline, tend to go 1, A, B, 1, 2, C, 1, 2, and then big number 2, and then the letter A again. The, the outline in ancient literature was, was very much shaped like this, that it would start at one place, go to a center, and circle back to where it started out. So it's not quite circular. It's called chiastic, and it looks like an X-shaped structure. And whatever is at the center of a chiastic structure is always the most important piece, that it teaches you what it's trying to get at. So when you have Genesis through Deuteronomy, we begin in a place of fellowship with God. We end in a place of fellowship with God. Genesis is the descent out of the fellowship with God. Exodus is the return to the place where God is going to teach us how to be back into his presence. And that's what the book of Leviticus is. So in that case, Leviticus is the centerpiece of the Pentateuch. It is describing how... Are man and God going to dwell together after what happened in the book of Genesis? Leviticus is the action that will correct what has happened in the book of Genesis. So for that reason, there's strong emphasis on holiness in Leviticus, on cleanliness in the book of Leviticus, blood and sacrifice, all the things that are necessary to dwell in God's presence. And these themes, of course, they're so familiar, are picked up throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you might say, well, I don't know of many verses from the book of Leviticus. Well, yeah, you do. You might not recognize that they're from Leviticus. But as we go through, especially the New Testament, even tonight, the number of allusions, with an A, allusions back, without saying, thus saith the Lord in Leviticus, allusions back are, are so numerous that it's almost hard to count them all. Any reference to a burnt offering. If you don't know Leviticus, you have no idea what that means. 
When it talks about the year of Jubilee, you have no idea what that is unless you've read the book of Leviticus before. And he talk about the priests or the Levites. The good Samaritan parable doesn't make any sense if you don't know what a Levite is. All the parables that Jesus will tell, the things he will rebuke them for. Why is it that Jesus turns over tables and gets mad at people for charging for their, their worship in the temple? It all goes back to Leviticus. It sets the theological stage for the rest of the Bible. We are out of fellowship with God. He's bringing us back, but we need to know how to conduct ourselves, and that is Leviticus. And ultimately, this book will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our tabernacle. He is our priest. He is our sacrifice. He is our means of atonement. Jesus is how we will be reconciled to God, which is why passages that remind us of Jesus are replete in the book of Leviticus. And, you know, speaking of the center of things, if the center of the Pentateuch is Leviticus, do you know what is in the very center of the book of Leviticus? We have chapter 16, and it's the talk about the Day of Atonement. When they would come and they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and make atonement. And in fact, if you really want to break it down, at the center of chapter 16 is the declaration of atonement for the people. So the way the Pentateuch is structured... In the middle of it, you have Leviticus. In the middle of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. And in the middle of that chapter is the blood being sprinkled for the forgiveness of sins. That's huge. That's the whole purpose of the Bible, isn't it? That we needed atonement for sin, and we learned that in Leviticus. So that's just a little taste. With that in mind, I hope you, you're a little more excited to study this book. There's going to be a lot of good instruction here, because all that is true, but it's still very much like a manual. But I hope you'll also be encouraged by it. And so to pick up where we left off at the end of Exodus, the last thing we see in Exodus is the building of the tabernacle. There is now going to be a dwelling place of God among men. God descends in glory upon the tabernacle. He dwells on the earth with man again. But this isn't the last verse of the book of Exodus, but it is one of the last verses. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple, it says Moses was not able to enter the sanctuary. Now, of course, this is a joyful moment, but it is important to recognize. In Genesis, they were not able to enter the presence of the Lord because of sin. And even now that they have created this sanctuary for the Lord, according to his design, the moment his glory entered into it, they couldn't go in. So, the book of Leviticus answers the question, what now? If we're supposed to go into the presence of God, how are we supposed to do that? And we start in Leviticus chapter 1 with an explanation of what a burnt offering is. The Lord called Moses. So there's that, that title in Hebrew, Vayikra, the Lord called Moses. And spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Get the scene in your mind, the glory, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. The cloud has descended on the tabernacle. He can't go in and out comes God's voice, just like before on the mountain. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. 
Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar." But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering or an offering of fire with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. So the north side would be the right hand side as you walked into the tabernacle courts. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The first chapters of the book of Leviticus outline the different kinds of sacrifices that would be made in the temple. Remember, we're answering the question, how are we going to get in there? And there's a bigger question. How, if, if God is going to dwell in our midst, the last time God was in our midst, we got kicked out of Eden. So how is this going to work? And the first thing the Lord tells them is, with offerings and sacrifices, just like we see in Genesis chapter four with Cain and Abel. Immediately they began to do this. And the first three are the most basic offerings that you're going to see. The three that we're going to go over tonight, the burnt offering, the peace offering, and the grain offering is what we're going to go over tonight. And you are going to see these words repeated over and over again in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the history books, in the prophets. So you got to know what these are. And we start with a burnt offering. This was a non-occasional offering, meaning this didn't happen when something happened. There were prescribed times for it. So the first one is the burnt offering. In Hebrew, this is an hola, just like Spanish, hola. But it means something totally different. The word actually means to ascend, an ascension offering or a going up offering. So burnt, you can see how those words could be related to each other. It's also sometimes called a whole burnt offering because obviously all the offerings would be burnt, but this is describing the entirety of the sacrifice being burnt up. By the way, the word for offering is the Hebrew word karban. Do you remember when Jesus talked about the Pharisees who would say they had money that was supposed to go to their parents and they say, no, 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 it's Corbin. You're like what in the world is that? They're saying it's an offering. It's supposed to go to the Lord. So Again, knowing what these words mean is important. The burnt offering. This is the most common and the most consistently offered offering in the Old Testament. And there are three different options for how you could bring a burnt offering to the Lord. First one is from the herd. This is meaning a bull, right? So a bull or an ox, something along those lines. Then there's from the flock. This is a sheep or a goat. 
and then there are birds. And these are not just various options. This is dependent upon your means. If you were wealthy and you had a lot of cattle, you would bring something according to your means. If you were maybe middle class, you would offer a sheep or a goat. And if you were very poor, you would offer pigeons or turtle doves. You got to remember, wealth in this time was measured by livestock, not by coinage or by credit as we have it now. So to you, it seems I don't own any turtle doves. Yes, but you know, if you needed to get an animal, it would be much easier to get a pigeon for you, would it not be, than to get a bull? You, you understand. By the way, Jesus' parents, when they come and offer him to be circumcised in the temple, they bring turtle doves because they were poor. Again, we've got to know the Old Testament. In each case, you would bring the offering from your own flock. Why does that matter? No wild animals. No hunting. No going out and, and getting something. This has to cost you. That's to come from what you have and present it to the priests who would inspect it to make sure it was without blemish. So it couldn't be crippled. It couldn't, in some cases, have spots or be deformed in some way. It couldn't be blind. Malachi, the prophet, would blast the people for bringing in their gimpy animals to be sacrificed. You're offering blind and lame animals. Your, your governor wouldn't even accept that as taxes from you. You can't send that tribute to your emperor. Why are you going to send that to me like I'm going to accept that? So you had to be, it had to be a healthy, blameless animal. And then he says you would lay your hands on the head. I thought this was interesting. The word for lay hands on is not like we think of to just lay hands. The word means to press or to lean. You are to bear down on the head of the animal. And that makes sense because this is in preparation for cutting its throat. So you need to get the picture in your mind. This is essentially holding this, this critter down. And you would then kill it. Notice, the one who kills it is not the priest. It's the one bringing the offering. You yourself would execute the lamb or the turtle dove or whatever it is. The priest would catch the blood in a bowl. Remember we read about the basins and the things that would be used? This is what it would be used for. They would catch the blood and it would be thrown against the side of the altar. Next thing you would do, not the priest, is that you would cut it up. You would quarter the animal, as it said. You would take the entrails and the legs out, and they were to be washed. Why is that? Well, not to be gross. Any kind of filth would not be allowed on the Lord's, uh, on the Lord's altar. Uh, first of all, because it's unclean, and it was not to be, anything unclean was not to be offered. But also, very practically, this is to be a sweet-smelling aroma. That's a big part of that. And if you're burning what you find in the entrails of an animal, it's not going to be that. So that was your next job, is to go to the bronze basin, wash out the entrails and the back legs. And then the priest would take it all, arrange it on the altar, set a fire. Remember the big bronze altar, seven by seven, we talked about. And they would offer that burnt offering. One of these was to be offered every morning and every evening by the priests. Also, on various occasions throughout Israelite life, especially on the big uh, holidays, when you read about Passover and things like that. They would offer a burnt offering. And you will see this as we go through Leviticus and Numbers with the various laws. If so-and-so does such-and-such, he must come and offer a burnt offering. This is what we're talking about right here. This was, you might say, the primary offering. That This is the most important one. And you see the purpose of it there in verse 4. It says, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Atonement, the English word, is three words combined together. At one mint. 
To make something at one is to reconcile, especially in a relationship. We're going to be one. We're going to come together again. And so that is similar to what it means in Hebrew. It can mean cleansing. It can even mean ransom. Don't think like we're holding somebody for ransom, but to make the appropriate payment, as in this case, for sin. And we know that in order to atone for sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. So something had to die. And I could see some of you ladies' faces as I was describing this poor little sheep uh, getting butchered for the offering. It's not fair. Exactly, it's not fair. Because who should it be being quartered and placed on the altar? It should be us. Something had to die in our place. And that's what the burnt offering represents. And three times in this chapter, the ola, the burnt offering, is called a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this is tied to the same idea. The word olah means to ascend, to go up, right? Like the smoke does. And so the aroma going up to the Lord. And we saw this the first time in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. You might remember this story. This is right after the ark has landed on Mount Ararat. They've come out of the mountain, or out of the ark, onto the mountain. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Very interesting. Noah offers burnt offerings, same exact term as what we have here. And as it says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. As it arised, this was when God vowed never to flood the earth again and when the rainbow was hung into the sky. And this is a very familiar idea from this culture. There are stories and legends from the ancient Near East that describe the gods smelling the scent of the offerings. However, it's very different in how the Old Testament portrays it than how they do. They describe it as the gods were hungry and petulant, and then they smelled the good smell and they got into a good mood again. As we're going to see in a minute, this is not God being physically appeased by the offering. David will say in Psalm 51, you will not be pleased by burnt offerings, right? He says, the offering of the Lord is a humble and contrite heart. And that's what an offering, that's what a sacrifice is. It's offering up something to God, and when he sees that, and they're using the terminology of the day, it's very poetic, it's very evocative, of God smelling that pleasing aroma, then God would show mercy. So in these days, we don't don't offer sacrifices any longer, and some of y'all say praise Jesus. So what kind of offerings do we give to the Lord? It is a life of love and submission to Christ that pleases God. There's two verses from the New Testament that specifically use this terminology. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians and he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So Paul was in prison. The Philippians sent Paul some money to help support him while he was in prison. And he received that and he's writing a letter to thank them. And look at what he calls it, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You've maybe read that before and have no idea where it came from. It comes from right here in the book of Leviticus. A fragrant offering, meaning you showing this kind of love to me, is the kind of sacrifice that makes God smile. 
And then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 says that we should walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Of course, the only sacrifice that God will accept is that of his son Jesus. That was the fragrant offering to the Lord. And Romans 12 tells us our whole lives are to be sacrifices to God. And the New Testament specifically draws out love, practical acts of love to each other as the kind of offering that God will accept. Right? That's why Paul will say things like, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and I have not love, I'm just making a whole bunch of noise, right? This is why Samuel would tell Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. It's always been that way. In order to approach God... You need to have an offering to atone for your sins. And that is what Christ has provided. Read Hebrews chapter 10. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But he talks about how Christ's offering is better because the burnt offering, morning and evening, had to be offered every day. Christ was offered once, and that covered everything. So this is the first major sacrifice offering of Leviticus, which is the burnt, or you might say the ascension offering. But burnt offering is a good name, and that's the one that we'll use. Chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven, nor any honey, as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. That would be ears of wheat or of barley. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord." I'm trying to read this in such a way that maybe you can picture what's going on. This is the second one, the grain offering. And the word for grain there is the word in Hebrew, it's a fun one, mincha. 
Try that. Say mincha. There you go. I heard the That's how you know you're getting it right. That word is also used in the Old Testament to mean tribute. When it says that Nebuchadnezzar or whoever exacted tribute from the people, the word is mincha. And I think you can see how these two words are connected to one another. You're offering tribute to the Lord. If you have an older translation or if you grew up with one like I did, you're used to this being called the cereal offering or maybe even the meat offering. And you might be confused if you hear it called the meat offering and then he's talking about bread. Well, in English, in a long time ago, meat meant more than just carne, like we say today, right? Meat meant all of your food. So that's what that meant. And of course, cereal offering, don't think like Lucky Charms here, cereal like the five food groups, you know, the cereals, grains, and breads. So grain offering is a good translation because it gets the the sense across here. And again, we're given three different options. There's flour. You can just offer flour to the Lord. You can offer various kinds of baked goods to the Lord. And then there's other miscellaneous ways of making it, roasting the heads of the grain. Now, the grain offerings were also to be offered daily after the burnt offerings. We're going to see all this as we go through, uh, but I just want to give you a little taste of it now. And there were many other occasions that would require a grain offering. It'll say the the leper would come from being cleansed and he would offer a grain offering. And you got to know what that is. So what you do is you would bring either the flour, finely ground flour, or you would bring an unleavened bread, no matter how you cooked it. One of the ways they used to cook things is they would get their stone oven and they would put the fire in it and heat it up really hot, scrape out all the ashes and then place the the wet dough on the sides of the oven and they would cook. And then when it cooled, you would peel it off and you would have loaves that way. So you could cook it that way. As I said, you could roast the heads of the grain, different ways you could do that. You would bring it with oil poured on it. Oil was a, a way it was things were eaten. We still use oil when we cook today. And frankincense. Now note this. The frankincense was not baked in with it. Frankincense is perfume. It's incense. It's what they brought to Jesus. And it comes from the resin or the, the gum of a tree. So you would take them. They, they would look like little rocks or little pellets. And you would put those on top of your grain offering. And all of the frankincense would be burned. It was not eaten. So it's important to know. Frankincense is not edible. I don't know if you're going to get your hands on any, but don't eat it if you do. But he says a memorial portion would be burned. So he would take some of the flour or some of the bread and all of the frankincense. Did you catch that? So everything that was aromatic would be taken and would be burned. So this is why, again, a sweet-smelling aroma. When you burn uh, an animal, obviously it's, it's going to smell quite a bit like barbecue, actually. That's a sweet-smelling aroma. When you're offering grain, the Lord's includes some kind of incense in order to make it sweet-smelling. But only a portion. The rest of it would be given to the priests. We're going to learn about this more later. The Levites and the priests... They did not have land. They did not have possessions. They were provided for by the offerings to the temple. So this is where their bread came from. They didn't go out and work the fields. They were working in the tabernacle or the temple all day. So people would bring the flour or the, or the bread or whatever, and that's what they would eat. And the Lord said that is most holy. And this is the same explanation Paul would give of why pastors and teachers and servants in the church should be paid as well. No grain offering could include leaven, which is like yeast. It would make the bread rise. We're familiar with this. He says the first fruits offering can include leaven, but a first fruits offering was brought to the tabernacle, to the temple, and was then stored and eaten later. So because it wasn't burned, it was okay for that to have leaven in it. But anything that was burned on that altar, no leaven and also no honey. 
I'll explain why in just a moment here. You don't include leaven because remember on the Passover, the Lord said, you're not even going to have time for your bread to rise. So you're going to have to just eat it the way, the way that it is without waiting for it to, to rise. So no leaven for that reason. But it became, and it remains today, a symbol of sin and corruption. Because if you know leaven or yeast, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of fungus <laughs> that grows up inside of the bread and causes it to rise. Now, it's not harmful or anything like that, but it's something dead. It has to go bad first. And what they would do is they would take a piece of sourdough bread and they would put that into the, the rest of the grain and then that would cause it to rise. And you take another portion, you save it for next time. So it's a symbol of sin and corruption. Jesus would say a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf, Right. Honey also served the same purpose because the sugar in a honey, when it breaks down, could also cause the bread to rise. Not only that, and I don't know if this is definite, but honey was a very common offering that was lifted up in pagan temples and pagan ceremonies. It was used in witchcraft in a lot of ways. I'm not really sure why that is, uh, but some people did bring that up, and that, that could be why the Lord prohibits that. Jesus said in John 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I'm going to keep on coming back to this, but Jesus was our ultimate grain offering. Amen. With no sin in him at all. Hebrews 4.15, right? He was tempted just like we are in every way, but without sin. There was no leaven in our grain offering to the Lord. And again, three times it is said to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Rising up to heaven, going up to the Lord. And I'll keep coming back to this point too. Just as our ultimate grain offering Christ had no sin, no corruption, no death in him, we likewise are to live in such a way that there's no fragrance of sin, there's no corruption about us, that we need to prioritize as Christians, as disciples of Christ, that we are separate. We're not of this world. We don't have that same sin and corruption in us. All right. Now let's talk about salt. I was looking forward to this. I mentioned this in the book of Exodus, that this is an odd little thing that I've been wanting to chase down. Well, I did. And uh, we're going to talk about this. Because in verse 13, you have this odd little verse where it says, All of your offerings shall be offered with salt, and you must not forget it. And you go, okay, <laughs> why is that? What's that all about? You see the same thing in Ezekiel 43, 24, when he's talking about the latter temple. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And he says, they will not forget the salt of the offering. So why are we making such a big deal about this? Well, in the Old Testament, salt, and the New Testament too, is used as a picture of preservation. That salt is a preservative. It keeps things from going bad. It also adds flavor. But I think preservative is the primary picture we've got to get here, that God will use salt as a picture of his promises, as we will see. So in a sense, salt is the anti-leaven. Leaven is something that is corrupting and it's dead, but salt is something that preserves and allows things to continue. So no leaven, but always salt, always that which is going to preserve. We also see then in Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, and in 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5, the Lord tells the priests and then David, he has made with them a covenant of salt. That's not a mistranslation. That's what it says. Well, covenant of salt. What is that all about? Well, the context of those verses is pretty clear. He's saying this is an everlasting covenant that's never going to end. So how is salt related to that? Again, salt is a preservative. Salt makes things last longer. 
And this is why in not only ancient Near Eastern culture, but even in Greco-Roman culture, salt was, a, was an important part of making covenants, making treaties, making alliances. Salt was part of it because salt was a preservative. It was a symbol that this is going to last forever. So when the Lord tells the priests, I've made a covenant of salt with you, he's saying, I'm not going to break it. When he tells David, I've made a covenant of salt with you, again, I'm not going to break it. So salt is a picture of preservation and even of eternity, the anti-leaven. Then you get to the New Testament, and it gets interesting. Jesus used this phrase three times. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He said this in Matthew. He said this in Mark. He said this in Luke. But in each of those books, Jesus uses that sentence in a different context. That doesn't trip me up at all. That just tells me that Jesus had some of his favorite phrases, and he used them on various occasions. And when his disciples wrote their books down, they remembered him saying things like that at different times. Kind of like how he would say, let he who has an ear hear. He would say, salt is good, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In Matthew chapter 5, 13, he's talking about persecution that will come, an enduring persecution. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. And you can't let the saltiness be taken away or the light be covered. So for there, salt is a picture of enduring persecution. You've got to let your testimony stand. In Luke 14, verse 34, he's talking about the cost of following him. That you must count the cost. Carry your cross and follow me. Then he says, salt is good, but if salt lost its taste, he says, if you lose your saltiness, you'll be thrown to the manure pile. So it's a picture of renunciation. To be a salty Christian is to have renounced the world and to be following Christ. Then in Mark, it gets very intense. I'm just going to read this one. Mark 9, 47 through 50. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Talk an awful lot about salt. Salt is good. You're going to be salted with fire. So have salt. Salt there is a picture of purging sin. To have salt in you is to be purged of sin. And he's saying you can either do this now on the earth by taking radical steps to stop sin, or you can go to hell and be punished for it there. So what is Jesus' point coming across all three of these things? He's saying, first of all, salt is good. Okay, that's to be part of God's people, to have that covenant of salt with the Lord. It's good to be a child of Israel, just like John the Baptist would say very often, right? But remember, salt goes on the sacrifice. Every sacrifice has to have salt. It has to go through the fire. So Jesus says, it's great to have salt, but if you can't endure the fire, your saltiness is no good. All three of those contexts are making the same point with a slightly different emphasis. See how he's describing the fire. In Matthew 5, he's talking about the fire of persecution. That they're going to come after you, but hey, you're the salt of the earth. This is the fire that your sacrifice must go through. 
In Luke 14, he's talking about the cost of discipleship, picking up your cross, counting the cost to build the building or go to war. And if you don't renounce everything, then you're not willing to be a salty sacrifice and you can't claim that covenant. And then in Mark chapter 9, he makes it very plain. You either get rid of sin or the fire of the sacrifice will be hellfire. He says, if you can't go through any of those things, your saltiness is no good. Your relationship with God is non-existent. So this is Jesus making the same point he always made. Yeah, what the Old Testament said is good if it applies to you. And you know it applies to you if you're willing to be a sacrifice. So to have salt is to be a living sacrifice. Everything burns up in the altar in service to God, whether that's the fire of persecution, the fire of self-discipline, the fire of renouncing sin and making tough changes. And if you don't, then the alternative is hell. So knowing that, that to have salt is to be like an offering that goes on the, on the altar, Colossians 4 verse 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. His point is, the words you say, if you're an offering and a sacrifice to the Lord, then every word must be able to be offered up to God, even if it means you've got to restrain yourself, like we talked about last time. So that's, that's a little study on salt there. Might have to work on that and make a little more out of it, because I think it's a pretty cool picture. First, it describes the, the offerings that go on the altar are going to be seasoned with salt. And then it describes the, the covenants that God makes through those sacrifices and through those offerings. But Jesus reminds us, but you can't just claim that if you're not willing to go through what it takes to follow me. So then you can apply it to everything in your life, ranging even down to the words that come out of your mouth. So you can see right away the grain offering, the whole book of Leviticus, has a far greater reach than just what they did in the olden days. Jesus is picking up terminology like deep cuts <laughs> from the book of Leviticus to preach to us. And we can read over that and say, I have no idea what it means to be salted with fire, so I'm just going to keep going. No, take the time and look it up. That's why we go through the Bible verse by verse. So that's our second major offering. We have burnt offerings, grain offerings. Now we get to chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, so right away there's a difference. Burnt offerings could only be male. He shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay or lean his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. So, so far, just like a burnt offering. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. So we're tying these two together. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, so a sheep or a goat, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. 
He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them in the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. So here we have the third. This is the peace offering. The word for peace, you probably know it, is the word shalom, which means peace. It's the greeting and it's the farewell in the Hebrew language. You say shalom like you'd say hello. And also means more than just peace. It also can mean like fellowship and community. It's a very rich word. And this one is distinct from the others. Like before, the bull or the sheep or the goat would be leaned upon. You're identifying yourself with this animal that is then killed. The blood would be thrown on the altar. This time, though, only the fatty portions of the animal are to be offered up on the altar. So he specifically says what's around the entrails, so the gut area, the fatty portion of the liver, the kidneys, and the tail for the sheep. This is, this is what you'd call a broad-tailed sheep, because we think of the ones that have those little cotton balls for tails, right? But something called a broad-tailed sheep, that is a long, wide tail, almost looks like a fluffy beaver tail, that hangs down to the ground, and it's actually a delicacy in some parts of the world. And some of them will get so heavy, like if it's a big prize broad-tailed sheep, that they would have to put little wheels on the tail so that they could drag it around. So you learned something today, (laughs) just like I did. And these would be offered up to the Lord. The peace offering was specifically for times of celebration, for completing a vow. Do you remember when Paul had taken a Nazarite vow and was going to go to Jerusalem and was going to offer his offering? That's this offering right here, a peace offering. This is the only one we have where there is no sense of forgiveness or atonement. This is just to unite fellowship. Now, you can see that in some cases, this would have been done with a burnt offering, but itself is not done particularly to fix something that's wrong. Also unique is that a portion of the meat would go to the priests and the rest of it would go to the worshiper. So you're not burning the whole thing. You're only burning the parts that we already mentioned. You see this actually illustrated quite a bit in the first couple chapters of 1 Samuel. Elkanah goes with his two wives to the tabernacle, and he offers a bunch of animals. He was a wealthy man, and he distributes portions of the sacrifice to the family. That's what we read about Hannah always got a double portion over Penina. That's in 1 Samuel 1. Then in 1 Samuel 2, you have Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And what they would do is they had this big fork that they would stick into the meat while it was boiling and pull it out. And they would say, well, whatever is on the fork is what God wants us to have. So they would take the fatty portions that were supposed to be burned for themselves. The fat of the offering was not to be eaten. And you say, well, who wants to eat the fat? Well, you got to don't just think fat like we think fat. This is the best portion of the meat. 
Back then, meat was a delicacy. You didn't have it every day. This was a unique thing. So you'll read in the Psalms sometimes about the fatness of the land or that they shall eat the fat. That's describing the best parts. This is the filet mignon. So the priests in Eli's day were sick of only getting the lean portions and they wanted the good bits. But they were not to eat the fat, nor was the blood to be eaten. Genesis 9-4, when they came off the ark, again, the Lord told them, do not eat or drink the blood of an animal. Remember, this doesn't mean don't have a raw steak. This means the blood needs to be drained and it needs to be properly cleaned and you don't engage in any of those gruesome blood-drinking rituals that the pagans would do. But this was a wonderful thing. A peace offering, a shalom offering, is a picture of having communion with God. The priest has his portion, God has his portion, and I have my portion. And when I go home and I eat this sacrifice, I'm sharing a meal with God. Isn't that cool? I'm having communion. Communion is related to the word for community, right? I'm having fellowship with God. It's important to know that because, as I said before, God is not smelling the offering and then softening his heart, nor is he actually eating this, which is what some of these cultures believed. Psalm 50, verses 12 through 13, God said, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Some have speculated that psalm might actually have been sung during a peace offering to remind the offerer, God isn't eating this. It's symbolic. We're not supposed to think of God in carnal ways like that. There's no magic here. There's no paganism here. It's a spiritual act of fellowship with God. This is why in the New Testament, Paul forbids the churches from eating the, the sacrifice meals at pagan temples. Because they had the same thing if you go to the temple of Artemis or you go to the temple of Zeus or Hercules, wherever it was. You would offer a sacrifice, then you would eat a portion and you're having fellowship with the gods. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to read now verses 18 through 21. When he's talking about this, he says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, specifically the peace offering, participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So Paul is saying, I don't want you to go through this kind of ceremony with some demon. Come on, idols aren't real, Paul. You don't think that Zeus is real, do you? He goes, no, but this is some serious pagan, magical, witchcraft type stuff. And I don't want you doing that. Now, what he'll say later is what they would do at these temples is they'd offer the sacrifices. And if nobody was there to eat it, you could buy it at a discount in the market. And what Paul will say later is, I don't care if you buy that. You don't, just don't ask where it comes from. Who cares? But he says, but I don't want you going in and participating in the ceremony. I don't want you sitting there, oh, well, I don't believe in Zeus, so whatever. It doesn't matter. He goes, no, it kind of does matter. This is a demonic thing. There's a fellowship that happens. Just like he said, there's fellowship between God and those who eat the peace offerings in the temple. Which brings us to some incredible conclusions about the communion meal in which we share. It is good to remember that we no longer serve the shadows of the old covenant. So these sacrifices are nothing that you or I have ever done or anybody living has done because there is no temple or tabernacle today. 
John 1.14, when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you could translate that the word became flesh and built his tabernacle among us. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is our holy place. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that the spirit of God dwells in us. We are God's holy place. So we don't need to go to some special temple to meet God. You don't even need to come to this building and meet God. Jesus was also the only sacrifice we need. He was the sacrifice to make an end of sacrifices. You don't need any more. We don't need bulls and goats. And so now, when we come to the table, we're there to remember. That's what Jesus said at the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. It's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? That Jesus is about to go to the cross and he tells his his dearest friends, remember me. To which we would say, Lord, how could we forget? But you know how weak we are. Not only that, but we were told in the book of Leviticus not to drink the blood. So Jesus tells us in John 6, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they go, this man is out of his mind. And he might be possessed, telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that didn't make any sense until we see the Last Supper, when he passes the cup around and says, hey, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Now you might say, why didn't Jesus just explain it to them at that time? Because Jesus was not about to deal with people that were only in it for a free meal. Go back and read John chapter 6 if you want to remember. He instituted the communion meal of the bread and the cup so that we can continue to have fellowship with God in that way. This is not a new sacrifice. That is not right. Hebrews says it over and over again, once for all. We don't need to re-sacrifice Jesus. God forbid. This is memory. And it's also a very spiritual thing. We also don't want to strip away so much significance from communion that it doesn't mean anything. It says you are sharing in communion with God. Community, fellowship with God. Just as they did here. And I'm going to now read the first two verses of the passage I read earlier. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So our third major offering, the peace offering, foreshadowed the Lord's table, the communion meal that we share with Christ and one another. He says, as we share in the bread and the cup, we are sharing in fellowship with Christ Jesus and his sacrifice. And because it's only one sacrifice, we share in fellowship also with one another. You can go anywhere around the world and you will find Christians sharing in communion together as they have for thousands of years. And all of that was prefigured in the book of Leviticus. When Moses constructed the tabernacle, The glory of God blocked his entry. Just like in the Garden of Eden. You can't come in here. You're full of sin. You must be atoned for. But immediately, the first thing God did was speak out these words of sacrifice that would open the way to entry. And we're not done. We're going to continue over the next several weeks. And it's not really until we get to chapter 16 that we're going to see it brought to its completion. But all those offerings 
foretold the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus that would open up the way to, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, unveiled fellowship with God, which we experience even now. What you see from this is that God is gracious and God is loving because he was the one that spoke out to tell Moses how they could approach. He was the one that sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners to invite us to come into his presence covered by the blood. The only pleasing aroma to God was that of his son offered on the cross. So now, through Jesus Christ, your life can be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. For this reason, we have an obligation to offer up ourselves as living, holy sacrifices, seasoned with salt and offered up with joy. 